And this evening I would like to consider uh, a theme in Scripture, uh, a quite simple theme, uh, and that is of the mercy of God. Um, And I wonder if we could just turn to a few passages before we get to Exodus. If you turn with me to Genesis in chapter 3. Here we have the account of the fall, Genesis chapter 3. Um, Adam and Eve have both sinned in the garden. They have rejected uh, God and his good blessings. They have turned to the offer of the devil, of the serpent, and for it they are being judged. A curse is being pronounced by the Lord to, uh, at this point, the serpent. And a judgment will also be given to Adam and Eve. Read with me there then, Genesis 3, uh, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And so here we have a passage of judgment, a passage of curse. And rightly so, for man has fallen. However, within that, we notice there, we have a passage and a word of grace, mercy, and a word of hope. For it says there, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, obviously, Noah and the ark. Since the fall, uh, man has degraded in his sin, in his perversion, in his wickedness, turned to greater and greater forms of evil, satisfied with more and more horrific debauchery. Verse 5 there of Genesis 6 reads, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But... Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Again, we see here a judgment of the Lord, a righteous and right judgment, a good judgment. However, a merciful provision, a grace given, a a hope uh, granted. Now turn again, please, to Exodus in chapter 11. And this is the Passover, the, the prediction of the Passover. Now read with me there, Exodus 11, verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But... Not a dog shall growl against the people of Israel. 
Now, if you turn with me to our final passage, 2 Samuel and chapter 12. And we join here in the middle of the story of David with his sin with Bathsheba. He has taken another man's wife. He has then sought to cover it up by multiple methods, resulting in the murder of this man. By the law, he was judged to be executed. He should have been executed. It would have been good and right for God to strike him down. Now read here with me verse 11 of 2 Samuel 12. Thus says the Lord, this is Nathan speaking, Behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbours, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do the thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And so once again, we see the Lord in his good and his righteous judgment being merciful and gracious. How compassionate he is. Although he would have absolutely every right to judge man, again and again he shows his tender heart and his hand is compassionate and tender to turn away his judgment and provide mercy and grace. What a wonderful God we serve. Do we not know this? For We can consider Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What we deserve, the path that we were once on, our end, our destiny was once eternal damnation. But the free gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now turn with me then, finally, to Exodus in chapter 25. Our passage this evening. Exodus chapter 25 and we'll read from verses 1 to 22. The Lord said to Moses... Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, oink stones, and the stones for the setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They, they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a moulding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark, to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it." And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. 
You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half shall be its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seats. Make one cherub uh, on the one end and one on the other end. One of one piece with the mercy seat you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their face one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall their face of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now let us pray before we start this evening. Our God and Father, we do thank you for the privilege which you have granted to us, uh, men and women who were once far off and dead in trespasses and sins, that we have been redeemed, brought near and saved. Lord, how good, how gracious, how kind, Father, you have been to us. Father, we ask a blessing upon our time now. May we glean from your word truths which will be helpful and profitable to our hearts, that we will be encouraged, challenged where we may be, and led to do your will. For your name's sake, we would pray these things. May the end of all our doings tonight and in all our lives be the glory of your name, our Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so we come to this passage in Exodus in chapter 25. Uh, Last week, Ian helpfully took us through 24, and we saw this covenant being formed between Israel and Jehovah, their God. Uh, We saw Israel's eagerness in this covenant. We saw Jehovah presenting his his standards and the claim, and Ian likened it to a marriage, a covenant being brought about. If we go back further, we can consider in the previous weeks, we consider what Boya showed us of the law and the book of the covenant. In chapter 20, we read of the Ten Commandments. And in chapters 21 and 22 and 23, we saw what is known as the book of the covenant, the application of the law, if you like. And the people of Israel at this point, well, they had seen the law, they had seen God's standards, they knew what God required of them, and they would have understood that they fell, well, tragically short. You know, you can imagine the people as they were round the bottom of Sinai, and as they looked upon that terrifying mountain, and they, 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 they saw the cloud covering it, and from it came the law. And you know, the law condemns. And the law reveals our sin. It has been likened to a mirror that we look into and we see the ugliness of ourself. We see all that we do that is wrong. All that we do is that is just completely outside of God's will. You know, we're very good at looking at ourselves in a good light. And we can frame it in a way that we think we're really not that bad. There are billions of people on this planet today who think that they are perfectly fine in God's eyes. You know, it's a a grace when we are made aware of our sin. It's the first grace in our salvation. It's the first act of God's grace in saving us. You know, I, 
I read last year the Pilgrim's Progress and the man Christian is in the town called Destruction and the first grace that he receives is when he understands that that town's about to be destroyed. And so too is with us. God first gave the law and the law condemned. And we, at one point in our lives, came to an understanding of our own sinfulness, of our own wretchedness. And that was a great grace on behalf of the Lord. And when we understood that, well, then we turned to a saviour. And the people here, well, they have come to an understanding with the law of their own sinfulness. But we can praise the Lord that there wasn't just provided a law, but there was provided a tabernacle. You know, Romans 7 speaks, speaks of this, speaks of Paul saying that he was, he was unaware of his sin, but then he realised he was dead, a dead man walking when he saw his sin. But he wasn't just given conviction of sin, he was given a perspective of the Saviour. And so too were the people here. They were not just given the law, but they were given the tabernacle. The law separates, but the tabernacle brings near. You see, the law condemns, but the tabernacle brings about sweet communion. Blessed communion. That those who are condemned by the law can come before the Lord in his own chosen way. Is that not what we have done? And so... We have once again the law and mercy, judgment and mercy. Yes, we may be condemned, but the Lord doesn't just condemn. He also provides great grace, mercy. He's not required to. If it was, it wouldn't be grace, but he chooses to. And for that, we praise him. And so we'll come on to this considering the tabernacle itself. But before we do, let us just take some time to look at uh, the contribution for the sanctuary. The first thing which has happened um, in this chapter, in the new covenant which has been formed, is that the people give to the Lord. Now I want us to quickly notice three things about this. Verse 2 says, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. Now firstly from that, Notice the offering was for the Lord. Now there will be offerings for the Levites and and for other things like that. However, this offering was directly for the Lord. They take a contribution for me. Secondly, the offering was for the individual from every man. It wasn't every tribe. It wasn't even the people as a whole. I would suggest it's not even every family, but it's every man. Later on, we see it was every man and woman. It was every person who wanted to give. Because thirdly, the offering was given from the heart. There are wonderful words there. Every man whose heart moves him. There was no compulsion in this offering. It was a free will offering. It was given out of the heart of the offerer. It was given from the, 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 the love of the worshipper. He was not compelled. She was not obligated but because of the goodness of the Lord in the past they could do nothing but give all they have to him for their future we can tell a lot about the people of Israel from these verses you know the people of Israel really do um, we, we see great changes and 
uh, we can see great faithfulness in some chapters and then faithfulness, faithlessness in other chapters. And I suppose it's the same with us, isn't it? But at this point, it truly is sure that they did love the Lord. They looked back to Egypt and they saw what they'd been taken from. And they remembered the slavery and the harsh conditions and, and that they weren't even a nation in themselves. They were a nation in a nation. And they saw the Lord's goodness and his mercy in pulling them out of that nation, in delivering them, in in redeeming them. And because they looked back to that, well, then they had a heart which would long to give all to the Lord. And so this collection, this contribution, well, it it was an easy task for the people of Israel because they desired greatly to give to the Lord. We read later on, In Exodus, we'll come to this, of how the people did give. And it says that Moses actually had to tell them to stop giving. They were so generous. They so wanted the Lord's glory and honour that they would give all things that they had. And so the application, just as we start this evening, is very simple. That Do we not need to look back also to our salvation, to the greatness of his grace towards us? And I'm glad we do that every week as we come together and break bread because it really helps us during the week to remember what he has done for us and so give all to him. I'll just make two brief points on the, uh, the nature of the, the list that was being offered. Have a look there with me at verse uh, 3 down to 7. And we have this, this great variety of different gifts that were given. You have gold, you have silver, bronze, ram skins, oil, fragrant incense, precious stones. There's a a huge range of things which were offered. Some from from the farm, from the farmer, some from, you know, maybe the jeweller. There seems to be a great variety in what was given You know, these people, they were providing and giving that the Lord might build for them, uh, make for them a a, a tabernacle, a place where he could dwell. You know, and so too are we building here today a spiritual temple. We are, God is building the church in us and we give our gifts. We serve with what we have. And is it not true that we don't all have the same gifts, but we give as the Lord has given us? Consider also the value of these gifts. Gold, bronze, precious stones. Israel was a slave nation. They really would have had very little. Maybe some family heirlooms. However, apart from that, you can't imagine they were wealthy. However, what they did have, we remember reading, was from the Egyptians. When the Lord delivered them, As a way of getting rid of them, the Egyptians gave them plunder. They said, take this and and be gone. And so the the gifts were of great value, but they they were ultimately from the Lord. God gave them these gifts, this this wealth, and then they gave it back to the Lord. And what a beautiful picture that is. What do we give to the Lord that we have not first received? Why is there a grudgingness, and I speak to myself, in giving up things for the Lord when all we have is a gift of himself? 
He is deserving of all things. All things are due unto him. And the people understood this, and so they gave generously. Now, we can consider now the tabernacle. As we have considered what they gave, let us consider what they were giving to. The the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. There's lots of different um, titles given to the tabernacle in Scripture. Uh, Essentially, it was a sanctuary. We read there in verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now, I think this is a critical verse, probably for... A large chunk of Exodus. Let them make me a sanctuary. A sanctuary is is a holy place. A place set apart for the Lord. We're reading of the fall and on how God uh, had to take himself away from the presence of man. Man was cast out of the garden. And the communion that was there, the relationship between God and man was broken. It was lost. However, now, verse 8 of chapter 25 of Exodus, we see, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. What a wonderful thing that is. I'll reiterate the point that the law separates, and the people were far from God. However, with this sanctuary, the Lord was bringing them near. What a thing that is. That is the Lord's desire to have us near to himself. Do we really grasp that? Do we understand what an incredible thing that is? That it is God's desire that we would commune, that we would be in relationship with him. You know, the Songs of Solomon speaks much of this. Of this, of this relationship. Um, and it's, it's, I would recommend reading it and considering communion and your relationship with the Saviour. For we see there the, the, the Christ's love for his church. And how he would long to be with her. Long to spend time. I'll read one verse just quickly. This is in Songs of Solomon. In chapter 7. Come, my beloved, this is the bride speaking. Let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and let us see whether the vines have budded, whether the grapes blossom, whether the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. You see, here we have the bride delighting to be with her bridegroom, to commune with her bridegroom, to know her bridegroom. Verse 11, come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields, a place of solitude, a place of intimacy, a place of quietness. Let us spend time alone in the quiet place. But also, verse 12, let us go out early in the vineyard. Let us go to work. Let us serve together. And isn't it true of us? That it is God's desire to dwell with us, to commune with us, that we can live with God. You know, we were saved from hell, yes. And that was what happened in our salvation. But that was not the only purpose. In fact, 
I would suggest to you the whole purpose of salvation is so that God might dwell with us. That we might commune with God. We have not just been brought from hell, we have been brought to God. And what a wonderful thing that is. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is greater than wine. And so the tabernacle, it was a place where God would dwell. It was a tent in the wilderness, in the centre of the camp. Uh, All the tribes of Israel would have been around it. It was concentric and there was an outer court with a gate at one end. And when you came in through that gate, you were met first with the bronze altar, the brazen altar. And that was where sacrifices were offered. It was a a large piece of furniture with horns on each corner. Uh, The the sacrifice would be strapped with leather to that altar, leather straps. And it would be held there and, and, and killed there. And then its blood would be taken into the sanctuary. Now, behind that altar, behind the brazen altar, there was a laver, a basin, a bronze basin. And that was for ceremonial cleaning. The priests would come and every morning they would clean themselves. And there's definitely pictures and symbolism there for the Christian. But as you go then in further into the tent itself, you then have in front of you the altar of incense. The altar of incense where where incense would be offered and a sweet smelling aroma would come from. The whole tent would have been filled with this aroma. And then to your left would have been the the lampstand. The lampstand which which really uh, can picture the tree of life and, and gives light. And then on your right you would have the table of showbread. Speaking of provision and communion, but all these we have to come on to. Because then you go in past the veil. Because at the back of the tabernacle there was this thick veil. And behind the veil there was the ark and the mercy seat. So you have the outer court, the holy place, and then the most holy place where the ark and the mercy seat were kept. And in the most holy place only... The high priest would go once a year on the Day of Atonement and offer blood as an atonement for the sins of himself and also the sins of the people. And so firstly, let us consider the ark. The ark. They shall make me an ark of acacia wood. Acacia wood was known for being strong, it was known for being robust, it didn't rot, it was found in the desert. It's used in the majority of the tabernacle. Uh, and it was really essential in this ark for, if we consider arcs of the past, we can consider the likes of Noah. And he built an ark and he was, he was kept from the judgment, he was preserved, we can consider Moses and he was placed in, in a basket. The word is ark and he was preserved. We can consider Joseph and his bones. When the people of Israel left Egypt, they took Joseph's coffin. It was called an ark, preserved. And so again here I would suggest that really the purpose of this ark is for the preserving of the law. The Ten Commandments. 
We read there in verse 16, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I will give you. Now that is the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments uh, we know well. And so it was to be kept and, and looked after and preserved. Such was the importance of these laws, of these words and statutes, that it was to be kept in the safest of keeping. You remember when Moses first came down the mountain and he, he, he sees the golden calf and he, he drops the tablets of stone and they're broken. Well, these are, these are second ones which are made. It's a whole law. It's a perfect law. It's unbroken. You can read later on, I think it's Second Samuel, of uh, men who opened the ark and looked in and men died because they could not look upon the whole law of God. Such, what should, such was its preciousness its value, that it was to be preserved and kept. So it was central uh, physically, geographically, it was central in the camp. It was central to to Israelite, Israelite life. They lived by these Ten Commandments and so they were preserved, but it was also central to worship. It was central to worship. You see, when the high priest came into the the most holy place, and when he was coming to offer that blood, he knew fine well what was in the ark. He knew that it was the Ten Commandments, and he knew that he falls short. And you see, this is the significance of the ark. This is, if you like, the judgment, the condemnation, the law that condemns. That we stand condemned under, convicted. This is the righteous and good and perfect judgment of God. It was overlaid with pure gold. Speaking of incorruptible righteousness. Perfection, pure gold. There was no spot in it. No flake of of speck of dust, but it was pure. And I would suggest that speaks of the, the righteous and perfect judgment of God. Pure gold. And so the people around the camp and the priest in the tent stood under the law. And they were condemned by the law. But praise God that there was not just the ark. Praise God that there was not just the ark, but on top of the ark, as a covering over the ark to cover the law, was given the mercy seat. This mercy seat. Now we read there in verse 17, you shall make... A mercy seat of pure gold. Again, pure gold, speaking of righteous judgment, perfect judgment. Now this, it was basically a lid, a pure gold lid which sat on top of the ark. It would have covered the the whole ark and would have had two cherubim on top facing one another with their wings outstretched. And their faces were looking towards the mercy seat. Now, the word for mercy seat, my Hebrew isn't good at all, but it's basically a place of atonement. It's a place where atonement was made. And so you have this ark in the most holy place which contains the perfect and unbroken law of God. And you have this mercy seat sat upon it. 
And you have the presence of God which would dwell above the mercy seat. We're told that later on. And it was here on the mercy seat that atonement would be made. If you read in Leviticus chapter 16, you, you, I would recommend reading that as we go through the next few chapters. And it talks about the high priest going in and, and offering blood and sprinkling blood seven times before the ark and one time on the mercy seat and signifying a sacrifice being made before God. And the, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, would look onto this, this blood and before the perfect law would be merciful and would forgive the sins of the people. Now I should make it clear that this was only an atonement and all these things do point towards a full, perfect propitiation. However, nonetheless, the, the law stood to condemned, but the Lord showed mercy. And once again we see that although the people, and so too we, were condemned by the law, the Lord is a good and a gracious God. And he provided mercy. A place of atonement. Our, our sins are great. God's judgment is just. We could be rightfully condemned. But instead, he has passed over. He has been merciful. And the blood that was shed for us is fully sufficient. And it has fully taken away our sins. Now, without getting too technical here, it's warm and, and overall a bit tired, but... An atonement is different to what's actually happening in the New Testament, I would believe. You see, the law only pointed towards the things that were to come. It was a shadow of good things to come. And the blood that was shed on the mercy seat, the blood of the bull and the goat, well, yes, it was shed, but it did not take away sin completely. It was a covering. Covering, the word means. It dealt with sin at the time, however... It had to be shed every year. We then come to the New Testament, and you don't see this word atonement in the New Testament, a covering. No, you see different words. You see words like propitiation, the wrath of God being appeased, the judgment of God being settled in the work of Christ. You see words like redemption, restoration, justification, these words are what mean that our salvation is perfect and complete. The whole tabernacle, I would believe, really points to Christ. It points to heavenly things. It points to the greatness of our salvation. It points to what we have received. And you know, when you read First, First Peter 1, you, it reads of, of the prophets and these Old Testament saints looking forward. I'll just turn there. First Peter in chapter 1. Well, verse 10 there says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched 
and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced. So we see there that these prophets who would have known the temple and the tabernacle well, they would have known that the feasts and the offerings and all these things, that the atonement that was made, but they knew that it was pointing to something greater. The purpose of the tabernacle, it was never permanent, it was a tent. It was a tent and it lasted for a time, but it pointed towards a perfect atonement, a perfect propitiation, a perfect work that was going to be done. It pointed towards Christ. It pointed towards a man who could stand up to the law. The law was written on his heart and it was perfect. It was whole and it was within him. And it was his blood that was shed before the presence of God. I've been to the altar and witnessed the lamb burnt holy to ashes for me. And watched its sweet savour ascending on high, accepted, Father, by thee. Accepted. How much greater is our salvation? Now, just read on there, uh, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you, those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, I skipped over the seraphim, but I think this is quite fitting here. The two seraphim gazing onto the mercy seat, looking onto this this blood that is shed. You know, what do we know about seraphim? Well, we know that they were set in place in the fall in the garden and they were set to guard the tree of life. Guard the tree of life. They were heavenly creatures who would make sure that no man would come to the tree of life unless it was permitted by God. And here they were watching the mercy seat. They were seeing a work of atonement. And the angels in heaven today, they look down on our gathering this evening and they see redeemed people. Ephesians 3.10, that the manifold wisdom of God might be revealed to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. You know, these are great and wonderful truths. That the very angelic beings would look on our redemption in awe and wonder at what God has done in your life and in my life. Of the propitiation of the redemption of the salvation that we have come into. And I think it was Spurgeon that said that If the angels gaze on in wonder, should not we? Should not we? What a great salvation we have. What a perfect blood was shed. All sins removed. We stood condemned by the law, deserving judgment. But behold, thine iniquity is taken away. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we do sincerely ask that our lives would be worthy of such a great salvation. We pray 
that we would praise you and glorify your name as it ought to be so glorified. Our Lord, you have been so incredibly gracious and kind towards us. We really understand so little of the debt we owe. We know so few things of what we have come into. We really do not know the depths we were taken from or the heights that we now stand in. But Lord, we pray that we would praise your name for all that we do know. For that little we do know of our salvation persuades us to give all things to you. To offer up all things in spiritual service, Lord. Take this week of our lives, take every day of our lives that it may be offered in service to you. For you, our God, have been so gracious and kind towards us. O Lord, we praise you and thank you for our redemption. Behold what manner of love that we should be called the children of God. Our Father, teach these things to us again and again, for we are quick to forget. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.